Hello, everyone, and I wish you a very, very, very warm welcome back to our podcast. I am Rika, and this is a podcast of Promote Ukraine called Ukraine Up to Date. I think most of you by now already know the intro really well because this is already the 20th episode of this podcast where we put together for you the most interesting, relevant and important topics and events about Ukraine and uh, talked a little bit about it. However, this is not only the 20th episode today, but also unfortunately the last episode of the season. But uh, don't worry, don't be sad about that. After the summer, we will be back for you with a second season to keep you up to date with things that are happening in and around Ukraine. So as uh, this is the last episode for now, I wanted to do something slightly different and talk to you about the uh, latest edition of the Brussels Ukraine Review, as there are some really, really, really interesting topics. But of course, you can always read the articles yourself on promoteukraine.org. I will put a link in the description box for you as well. But without further ado, let's get started. So the first article is called A Vicious Circle Must Be Broken, and it is uh, made by Vitaly Partnikov, who is a Ukrainian journalist, political commentator, author, and opinion maker. So in case you're wondering, I will uh, tell the story from his perspective. So let's get started. So when uh, Vladimir Zelensky ran for the president of Ukraine, the commitment to resolve the conflict in Donbass and stop the war was one of his main campaign promises. A large part of Ukrainian society, not only Zelensky himself, deemed that the war in eastern Ukraine continued not only because of the Kremlin's interest, but because Kiev was interested in that also, to use the conflict for justifying political and economic failures and, needless to say, to thrive on the war. Today, Zelensky himself and most of his recent supporters, who become increasingly disappointed in their choice, are no longer optimistic about a speedy resolution of the conflict. However, I will be not very surprised if another populist candidate appears before the next presidential election and says the same things addressed to Zelensky. His administration tries to cover up its own failures with the war and thrives on the conflict. At the same time, I do not even think that the obvious things should be denied. Politicians in power often use a protracted conflict inside a country to justify their own problems. Meanwhile, corruption may be a well-observed in the military sphere as in any other. However, the main problem is the apparent misunderstanding shared by a big part of the Ukrainian society. And Vladimir Zelensky is a prominent proponent of this notion of reality as to why the war in Donbass began and what Russian President Vladimir Putin's goal is. The fundamental reason for this misunderstanding is that Ukraine and Russia have followed different paths of development over the past three decades, primarily in terms of the vision that the elite and society have about the prospects of their own statehood. In this sense, Ukrainians are united by a common understanding that the Ukrainian state has the right to exist. And what separates them is the understanding of how the state should develop. Some Ukrainian citizens, and their number increases over the years, are confident in the European vector of the country's development. Some citizens, and their number becomes progressively smaller, especially after 2014, 
believe that the future of the Ukrainian state lies in the union with Russia and other former Soviet Union countries. And finally, there are many people who have no objection to the European choice, but consider that it is uh, possible to reach an agreement with Moscow, believing that Putin really does not need this war. Indeed, uh, Vladimir Putin does not need a war. He needs Ukraine. He needs it precisely because in the years after the proclamation of independence by the Ukrainian SSR, the Russian elite, followed by Russian citizens, began to perceive Russia as a natural successor, not to the Soviets, but to the pre-revolutionary Russian Empire. Therefore, Ukrainian and Belarusian lands are seen as an integral part of Russia, while Ukrainians and Belarusians as a part of the Russian people and the so-called Russian world. That's why Putin's plan is a very logical and clear plan for the revival of the old state. Its first stage is the annexation of Crimea as a territory that is regarded by Russian public opinion as a Russian land and inhabited by the Russian ethnic majority. The second stage is the establishment of control over eastern Ukraine, over the lands that, according to Vladimir Putin, were presented to the Ukrainian SSR by the Bolsheviks. The full list of these territories is cited in the speech of the Russian president at the ceremony dedicated to the accession of the Republic of Crimea and the city of Sevastopol to the Russian Federation. And then finally, the third stage is the establishment of control over the rest of Ukrainian territory, possibly without the Western regions that became part of the Ukrainian SSR after 1939. The second stage has fixed on the control over part of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions so far. However, the plan may be revisited in the case of new destabilization in Ukraine or if the Russian president decides to launch another special operation of pacification by force. In practice, this means that no Ukrainian president will be able to reach an agreement with Vladimir Putin because the Ukrainian president is obliged to defend Ukrainian sovereignty, while Putin regards Ukraine merely as a rebellious province. But at the same time, no Ukrainian president will be able to believe in the real goals of the Kremlin because Ukraine, either European or pro-Russian, is already a constant, while for Putin, it is only a temporary state formation on ancestral Russian land. So is there a way out of this invariable deadlock? Obviously, well, there is. <laughs> Ukraine needs to defend its statehood until Russia realizes that the Ukrainian matter is closed and Ukraine will never be a part of the Russian state again. Ukraine's European and Euro-Atlantic integration is the natural guarantee of protecting Ukraine's sovereignty, which is why Russia has always so fiercely opposed Ukraine's accession to NATO and why it has tried to thwart Ukraine's signing of the association agreement with the EU. Ukraine as a NATO and EU member will be a severed peace for Russia because the Kremlin will not engage in an open confrontation with NATO and an attempt to destroy the statehood of an EU member state even under Putin's rule. And there we come closer to finding an answer to the most difficult question. How can a country, the very survival of uh, which depends on joining NATO, join the alliance without settling the problems of territorial integrity? Moreover, Russia, which encroaches on Ukraine's territorial integrity, will do everything possible to continue the conflict precisely to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. And the same problem, but in the longer term, may also arise when Ukraine starts negotiations on accession to the EU. 
Although in this case, we can mention the experience of Cyprus, which joined the Union without its northern part. Indeed, we should admit that it is a vicious circle for now. Even if Ukraine successfully fulfills all the requirements for the Euro-Atlantic and European integration, However, if we want this integration of Ukraine, and most importantly, if we do not want a new great war to start in Eastern Europe, we will have to work together to break this circle. Say, so the next article has the interesting name Life in the Land of War Colors and is written by Ina Krupnik, who is a freelance journalist, commentator, and copywriter with more than 15 years of experience. So, Авдіївка, Красногорівка, Марінка, Широкине, Хнутове, Попазна, Щастя and Піски are toponyms of Donbass that are often mentioned in news about the war in eastern Ukraine. This is only a small part of the 155 settlements of Donbass located on the line of contact in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Individual human destinies and stories are hidden in the names of towns and villages. Terrible piercing, life-affirming, and sometimes just ordinary ones. So statistics of international organizations attribute about two, no, sorry, 3.5 million people as victims of the humanitarian disaster in Donbass. Of these, about 1.8 million people live in the temporarily occupied territories of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. The rest live in the territories controlled by Kyiv, including about 450,000 people living in the frontline zone. Each of these 450,000 residents of the red line of demarcation has his or her own war on a daily basis, the war for life in the land of war colors. So for example, uh, Irina Ostimova, who is 38 years old, who left Donetsk in uh, September of 2014, joined the ranks of local teachers in Avdivka. There's always a shortage of teachers and doctors in the region. So in 2014 to 2015, there was a real boom in migration of the population to the frontline towns. The increase was on average 15% due to the so-called refugees from the war and the Donetsk People's Republic. These people did not go deep into Ukraine, but only moved within Donbass. Therefore, uh, Ms. Ostimova teaches children in one of the schools in Avdiivka from morning to until 8 p.m. due to the rapid increase in the number of pupils. Internally displaced persons are now a separate social stratum of the population from the most densely populated regions of the state, so Donbass, which it was before the war. As of the 4th of January 2021, According to the Unified Information Database of Internally Displaced Persons, over 1.4 million internally displaced persons from the temporarily occupied territories of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions and the Autonomous Republic of Crimea were registered. Raisa Taranenko, who is 73 years old, a pensioner from the village of Zaitseva from the Bakhmut district in Donetsk region, Badly damaged by shelling, looks at its traces on the walls of her house every day. Until 2016, her house was located in the so-called grey buffer zone of Zaitseva. That's why she managed to live some 600 meters from the separate trenches. The firewood stacked near the wall for the winter served as a protective barrier against shells. 
In 2019, the repair of damaged by shelling began uh, with funds from the Norwegian Refugee Council in Ukraine, the NRC. First of all, the restoration will apply to houses of pensioners who make up uh, 35 to 40% of the population from the frontline zones. The civil military administrations of these towns help to obtain uh, compensation for the destroyed houses or new housing for the victims. Life in the frontline zone has become more peaceful and intensity of shelling is much lower. But more money is not allocated for the repairs because it's a red zone. Therefore, hypothetically, all the investments may be lost due to possible destruction. Mikula Yushkov, who is 70 from Mayorsky, regularly visits his daughter who lives with her family in a pro-Russian separatist controlled territory. Every day, about 30,000 say tourists, uh, cross the 427-kilometer demarcation line at five checkpoints in both directions. Someone does this visit to a family divided by the war, others to receive a pension or social security benefits, or to buy or sell food. Sometimes even old people are forced to participate in such schemes of earning money on food. Needless to say, it's not always safe. Uh, Maria Krislenko, who is 80, stands in long lines at the checkpoint every day and brings food from uh, Stanitsia Luhanska to Luhansk, where her grandchildren live. So as she said, I was going to die in 2013. My back ached and I could not walk. And now I have been making efforts for four years of war. Otherwise, my grandchildren will die without me, she says. As of the 30th of August 2015, there were about 600 residents in uh, Stanitsia Luhanska. As of January 2020, about 12,000 people lived in the village due to internal migration. The Semenyuk family from uh, Jovanka, the spouses, went through the traumatic experience of being kidnapped by militants and uh, having a difficult return home. It happened in early 2015. At the time, Jovanka was also a grey zone, and Russian hybrid forces quietly penetrated there. The spouses were taken to Yenakievo, where they were beaten and bullied, but fortunately they were released. After that, the family left for the Poltava region. When Jovanka was back under control of the Ukrainian army, they returned home. After such stories, the fear of being kidnapped existed in many frontline houses and in occupied territories for a long time. There's also a collective story. Students of the local vocational school of the mining town of Hirnyak regularly painted out pro-Russian inscriptions around the town during the most difficult years of 2014 and 2015. In the first years of the war, they were almost the only Ukrainian center in their hometown. In the first years of the war, teenagers and vocational school teachers often did not find support and understanding among the majority of the townspeople. Now the situation is changing. So to quote, people are not blind, albeit zombified by Russian propaganda. They see what Ukraine gives and what the DPR does. They gradually accept Ukrainian side. They even come to our vocational school club to talk about life at the front. This is what uh, Mikola Dachny, a 17-year-old vocational school student, said. Some of these 450,000 frontline residents had to become more persistent, escaping from a hard life. Vasil Hotko, whose car was destroyed as a result 
of the shelling of Mariupol in uh, January 2015 is still actively fighting for compensation from the state. Natalia Krasna, who left the dangerous Shorokina with her family, went through several stages of infernal jo- part-time jobs before starting her own business in Mariupol. The woman claims that without the war, she wouldn't have found all those wonderful people with whom she stands together as entrepreneurs of the new Donbass. Events in the East forced many residents of the Donetsk region to become more socially active and learn to contribute to the life of the community. Grand projects teach them uh, to defend the right to a dignified life and uh, control to local budget and implement public initiatives. In particular, a project called Increasing the Ability of Community Members to Influence Local Governments in the Frontline Towns of Ukraine was launched at the end of 2020 and will be implemented in eight frontline towns. There have been no local elections in the frontline zone since 2010, including elections last autumn. In these territories, there are civil military administrations, the heads of which are appointed, not elected. So to prevent the creation of an autocracy, members of local communities should be involved in the decision-making process and realizing the interests and needs of the frontline towns. To quote, we live in the line of fire. Nobody knows how it will end for us. We have no other choice but to be constantly in good shape. When we wake up every morning, we must ask ourselves what we have done to make our little town better while the war is going on. If we sit down and just wait, the budget money will not come to us. So that is what a Turetsk resident said. Many lives in the frontline zone were cut short. According to the UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission in Ukraine, 3,375 civilians have died since the beginning of the Russian Federation's armed aggression in Donbass. More than 7,000 civilians have been injured. The mortality rate of the civilian population is 25 to 26 percent of the total death toll. So uh, 3,375 out of around 13,100 to 13,300. During the war, this ratio has changed significantly from 33 to 34 percent in 2014 to 4 or 5 percent in 2019 to 2020. During the entire period of the war in Donbass, the number of civilian casualties was the lowest in 2019. The worst thing is that uh, since the beginning of hostilities in the east of Ukraine, so from April 2014 to August 2020, at least uh, 42 children have been injured by mines and explosives in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions of Ukraine. Due to the active conflict, it is still impossible to implement a demining plan, which can take at least 25 to 30 years. Since the beginning of the Russian aggression, the total size of mined areas is about 7,000 square kilometers in the controlled area and about 14,000 square kilometers in the temporarily occupied territories of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions and the Autonomous Republic of Crimea. Some residents of the frontline towns live creatively despite the proximity of the front. They are shooting amateur films. They become heroes of professional documentaries. For example, um, Hanna Hladka from uh, Krasnohorivka, a mother of four children, became the heroine of Irina Tsilik's documentary The Earth is Blue as an Orange. The film won the Directing Award World Cinema Documentary at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. So to quote, the earth is a film within a film. 
For a whole year, the director watched Hanna and her eldest daughter, Miroslava, who were filming their everyday life in the frontline zone. In fact, and that's a quote, in fact, our film is not about war, it is only a background here. This is a film about growing up, about balancing between war and peace, about self-therapy with the help of cinema, and about many other things that can be close and understandable to different people in the world. That's what uh, Tzilik said in an interview with MovieGram. Despite the surreal combination of art and war, the film did not get dramatic. Various funny scenes from the life of the family are demonstrated. There are no loud popular discussions about resolving military conflicts or accusations of the authorities. Cinematography helps the protagonist cope with the unpleasant experience of war. Mother Hannah and her children speak frankly about their experiences of the war only in the episodes where they interview each other. Tzilik noted in an interview with The Village, I quote, I want to share the stories of such people. Ukrainians are very different. We tend to feel sorry for ourselves. We focus more on problems. But there are a lot of people around who amaze me. I like the way they take their lives into their own hands and live and even know how to enjoy their life. I am terribly impressed with such people and I want to tell about them. The amateur movie of Miroslava Trofimchuk, the daughter of uh, Hanna Gladka, has already been screened at two festivals, so Open Nights and Bardak. Well, peace in the frontline zones is still very, very fragile. The soldiers of the armed forces of Ukraine provide the local population food and medical assistance. The hostilities and shelling do not cease on the part of the enemy, even in the context of the current ceasefire. Among the lower level problems, the most critical are access to healthcare services, ambulances, staff shortages, road conditions, transport links, crossing the contract line, and rising prices for coal, firewood, and utilities. But the frontline zone for 450,000 people has long become a place of real life, life with hope for the rest, small victories, daily routines, and the gradual growth on social consciousness. And all of them, residents of the Donbass frontline villages and towns, will definitely and finally win their war. The war for life in the land of the color of war. So that was already it with today's episode and also this season's last episode. But again, as I said, don't worry, we will be back for you soon after the summer with some fresh and new information. And for now, I wish you a great summer and I'm happy to see you back very, very soon.